everyone, before you get started on this episode, I just want to let everybody know that I have renamed the show Historically Haunted, and I also changed up my formula from the episode. So what you're about to listen to is an older version of the show. The new show is a lot better. I hope you guys stick around to listen to the much newer episodes that started at episode 18. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm now at Historically Haunted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you guys want to email me any personal paranormal experiences or just say hi, you can email me now at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. And I have my links to all my new stuff down below. So I hope you guys enjoy and I hope you guys stick around for the newer stuff. All right, let's roll that old tape. everyone, welcome to History and Mystery, a podcast that covers historical and haunted locations. I am your host, Ariel. I hope everyone had a great time over the holidays. I did end up having a good Christmas, but I was also extremely sick. If you are new to my show, welcome, and I sound much better than the last four episodes, I can assure you. I ended up having a cold that turned into a really horrible sinus infection, and then that also turned into pneumonia. My sickness lasted almost two months, so I was so tired and sounded awful for weeks on end. I would go to work, come home, and go straight to sleep. Once I finally went to the doctor, I was on medication for two weeks, and then over Christmas, I had to get another round of medicine because I couldn't shake it. And in the end, I ended up taking two weeks off of my podcast after the Christmas episode because I needed to rest my voice and my body, and honestly, also my mind. But now I am back. I have finally felt good enough in the last week to even go on a historical tour of the location I'm going to be talking about today, and that historical location is Old Town, Sacramento, California. I found out such good information from this tour, so I had to change a lot of the history part, but it was totally worth it. Before I begin today, I have a few things to talk about. First off, Australia. I love you guys, and I am so sorry for what you're all going through. I have lived with fire evacuations and fire danger for the last five summers in a row where I live, but I could not imagine all of those beautiful animals and the people that have lost their lives. I am so sorry that this is even happening. I just wanted to say that I'm praying for you, and I have donated to a fund to help out in the best way I can. I wish I could fly there and do anything to help, but I just can't. I would love to encourage anyone who can donate even just a dollar to a good charity that is helping the animals and the people who have been displaced and killed by these terrible bushfires. And then we have Puerto Rico. My heart is also with you and I am also praying for you with those terrible earthquakes you're all dealing with. And lastly, because our world can't get any more terrifying right now, my country, the United States, has deployed more troops to the Middle East, and I just wanted to thank you all for your service and say that I am praying for your safety. During times like this, it is easy to feel hopeless and feel alone. So if you are struggling with depression and you feel like it's starting to go to that really dark place, please talk to someone. Talk to a relative or a friend. And if it's hard to talk to someone you know, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or chat with someone on their website at www.suicidepreventionlifeline.org chat. I love all of you guys and I hope together we can all get through this. History and Mystery is at 2,462 downloads. I am super excited. I wanted to thank everyone who has taken the time to download and also to review my show on iTunes. It was really nice of you to take the time out of your day to do that. I have a new review on iTunes from Henman Outdoors. And they said, I just love the content and no matter if anyone else has covered something, it's always nice to hear someone else's take on it. Keep it going. Thank you so much for that review. If you wanted to leave a review on iTunes, it would be really helpful to the show and it'll help spread the word that my show is out there. I also wanted to announce that I finally have an official website and I encourage everyone to go check it out. You can get to know me better on there, find links to my Patreon page, learn about dyslexia, and listen to the show right from the website itself. You can also contact me with your personal ghost stories or just say hello. 
You can find my website at www.historyandmystery.org. And don't forget to add me on Facebook at History and Mystery and join our History and Mystery group page. And don't be shy. You can post anything paranormal related. You can post a meme to make us all laugh. You can post about if you're having a hard time and need to hear some encouraging words. But I do have a few rules. No politics. Please don't try to sell anything. And also, always be kind to everyone. Okay, that's a wrap. Now it's time for our Monster of the Week. The moment I decided that Sacramento, California would be my next location, I knew that Bigfoot was going to be this week's Monster of the Week. Bigfoot sightings have been reported all over the world, but none have been more famous and more argued about than the Bigfoot that was supposedly caught on tape in the mountains of California in 1967. This tape is now known as the Patterson-Gimlin film, or PGF. In this famous Bigfoot encounter, two men were out on a backpacking trip deep in the northern California wilderness. The men's name were Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin. The location of this video that was shot was alongside the Bluff Creek and the tributary of the Klamath River. The site is about 38 miles south of the Oregon border and 18 miles east of the Pacific Ocean. Patterson had become interested in the Bigfoot after reading an article about the creature in True Magazine, and he, along with his friend Roger, went out looking for proof of the Bigfoot. While riding on horseback, they rounded a bend, and there it was, a strange, large, and tall, hairy creature walking away from them. The horses became spooked, and Patterson was thrown off his horse. After he jumped up, he pulled out his 16-millimeter camera and scrambled over the embankment to try to get a shot of a lifetime. The footage is grainy and shaky, and a little bit hard to see at times, but you can definitely see, clear as day, a Bigfoot walking away from them, and even looks back once at the camera. Patterson named the creature Patty, for it looked like a female because, as he stated, it had really big breasts. And, funny enough, you can see that in the footage. This tape has been debated by historians, scientists, conspiracy theorists, and if you ask a few people, the FBI is apparently even interested in this tape. But one thing is for certain, no one can ever agree on if this tape was a hoax or 100% real. The Astonishing Legends podcast did a full six-part series on this PGF and the Bigfoot history, and they came to the conclusion that it was in fact a real documented proof of a Bigfoot, not a man in a suit. The Bigfoot sightings have been reported all over California, but most of the more famous ones are up near the Oregon and California borders, along with sightings from Washington State and Oregon. But Northern California holds the unofficial title of the most Bigfoot sightings and home of the Bigfoot. Even one of our presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, talked of this creature in his book, The Wilderness Hunter. In this book, he speaks of an incident where an Idaho fur chopper was brutally killed, and I quote, a bipedaled beast creature with four sharp fangs. In 1924, in a place so perfectly named Ape Canyon, miners began to report of an ape-like creature throwing rocks at their cabins and attempting to break into them. The Native American people have known of this creature for hundreds of years, calling him a giant hairy wild man. It turns out that the name Sasquatch actually is comes from the Native American Halkamon language, which means wild man. Many people today believe in Bigfoot, so much so that there is a Bigfoot Research Field Office organization called the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. They were founded in 1995 and claimed to be the only scientific research organization exploring the Bigfoot slash Sasquatch mystery. They hold expeditions all over the United States to look for proof that Bigfoot exists. And you can also report sightings that you've had on their page. Also, according to this organization, they have published 670 out of the 2,078 reports received from Washington State, and there were also 444 published sightings out of the 1,709 from California. What I'm thinking they do is they take all the reports and then really look into them to make sure they're correct and accurate and not spoofed and made up. 
because when I was looking on their website, they really truly do try to use scientific evidence for everything that they do, which I thought was pretty interesting. So if you have a Bigfoot sighting and it's real, you should definitely go onto their website and report it so that way they can put it in their system. The National Forest Service has even gotten on board this Bigfoot train by naming a remote stretch of the California Route 96 the Bigfoot Scenic Highway. Also, a 360-mile trail in the vast NorCal wilderness is named the Bigfoot Trail. This trail stretches throughout the Trinity Alps, Russian and Marble Mountains, Yolo Bolo, as well as some of the Siskiyou Wilderness. There are also shows on TV today about Bigfoot, such as mini-documentaries and reality-type shows where people are out trying to find Bigfoot. The newest and most popular show right now is on Travel Channel called Expedition Bigfoot, and they use more of a scientific approach with the new scientific technology to try to prove that Bigfoot is actually out there and they do exist. Just in October 2008, there was a report of a Bigfoot sighting on California's Highway 101. During the Mendocino Complex fires, a man had seen Bigfoot while he was driving north up 101. He claimed that the creature stepped onto the southbound lane and it ran across the road. And he got in the way of another car who was trying to pass him, so the car next to him had to slam on his brakes and the car that was passing him barely missed this creature and sped off but the man who was in the right side lane he had to really slam on his brakes to try to stop he said he came to a complete stop and now i'm going to read a quote from him from an article that was found on the willitsnews.com the man said when my car finally stopped i looked out the windshield and it stopped about 25 feet in front of me at the edge of the road it was at eye level with me as I sat in the car. I had no idea what it was. It was covered with hair down to the ground. I looked at its face and it was completely flat without a nose. It turned its whole body towards me and its neck was stiff. We made eye contact. Its face was yellow or gold like a ripe banana and it had holes for nostrils with a smooth and shiny forehead with ridges instead of eyebrows. I saw a red glow coming from its eyes. It may have been the reflection from my headlights. Its mouth was closed and it had thin lips. It didn't show any teeth and made no sound at all. And then it turned and leapt down the ditch and up the hillside. I was freaked out. And I was looking into a lot of Bigfoot sightings before I wrote this and that matches a lot of the other Bigfoot sightings that are out there. It's kind of creepy. This is definitely not the only sighting on 101 in Northern California, and I'm confident it will not be the last. I personally believe in Bigfoot and the Yeti. This is not the only sighting on Highway 101 in Northern California, and I am confident it will not be the last. I personally believe in Bigfoot and the Yeti, and I think with just how many people are reporting sightings and how far back the sightings go, I think there definitely has to be some truth to it. I hope that one day they do find proof that this actually exists. And then I will laugh at the people who are so determined to say that Bigfoot is not real no matter what. I find Bigfoot sightings and Bigfoot fascinating and that is why he was our monster of the week. Sacramento today is the capital of California, boasts a beautiful capitol building, hosts the Kings NBA basketball team and concerts in the new Golden One Center Stadium, right in the heart of downtown, and has many great places to shop and eat. Amongst the new and modern city and the housing districts is a historical area that if you didn't know it was there, you might just drive on by. That place is called Old Town Sacramento Waterfront. Old Town Sacramento is a state historical park that was left to look like the town it once was in the 1800s, with the National Railroad Museum as well as shops, restaurants, and even a parked ferry boat that is now a hotel and restaurant, it is a beautiful place to visit. Once a town of rough-and-tumble miners and railroad builders, it was truly what you would expect from the Old West. It has dealt with murders, disease, fires, and great floods. But it was also a place of business for banks, mining, and the railroad companies. Old Town Sacramento has lots of tragedy it has endured over its 150 plus year life. Maybe that's why they hold ghost tours on the weekends during the month of October. 
Over my Christmas break, I had the pleasure of going on a historical tour that they give from the Sacramento History Museum. The tour is called the Underground Tours. It is called that because the buildings have been raised up due to the area flooding so much. I'm going to share what facts I learned about the town thanks to this tour. This was not the ghost tour, however, because they only give those seasonally. But trust me when I say I am definitely going to go on that tour as soon as I can. So, because I took the tour, I had to add a lot of new information to this episode. But it was so worth the delay in posting this episode because the history and the web of people that all had their hands in this town is fascinating. And it might surprise you. So let's find out together why this historic district also has a haunted reputation. California in the 1830s was a territory of Mexico, and in 1839, a man named John Sutter arrived at the shore of the American River. He had come to this area because he was promised a land grant from Mexico. Sutter and his landing party set up a fort that he named Sutter's Fort. For those who listened to my episode about the Donner Party and the Donner Memorial State Park, Sutter's Fort was where the Donner Party was trying to get to before they got stranded up in the mountains due to heavy snowfall. John Sutter built his fort about two miles from the waterfront area, even though this area would later become the hub of activity for trade and people flocking in during the gold rush. At the time, Sutter built the fort two miles away because he knew that the area near the river was prone to flooding. The fort was a place for new settlers to come and rest after their long trip across the United States wagon trains, and people who wanted to come and start new businesses in the new territory came and went, but nothing drove people to this area more than the California Gold Rush. On January 24, 1848, a carpenter from New Jersey named James Wilson Marshall was building a water-powered sawmill for John Sutter. The mill was located on the South Fork of the American River at the base of the Sierra Nevada Mountains near Coloma, California. As he was working on the mill, he looked down into the crystal clear water and he saw something that would change California forever. It was gold. Flakes of gold just laying at the bottom of the river. Marshall and Sutter hoped to keep the discovery quiet. The Mexican-American War was being fought at this same time, and as a result of this war, California became a territory of the United States when the Treaty of Galapagos Hildago was signed on February 2, 1848, in Mexico City. This treaty would then transfer the American Southwest to the United States. Right after the treaty was signed, word leaked out about the gold discovery in California that now was became a territory of the United States, and that caused a mass migration, with 300,000 people coming out to California over the next seven years. Half the people came by sea on ships, and other half came by land in vast wagon trains over the California and Oregon trails. Either way, the journey was long, hard, and expensive. For all ships entering Northern California, the main port of call was San Francisco. From there, the passengers would take yet another ship that would take them to Sacramento. Americans were not the only people interested in the idea of striking it rich. An estimated 60,000 Chinese immigrants, along with 7,000 Mexican immigrants, and tens of thousands from many other countries came to America with hopes and dreams of finding the motherlode. Once gold was found near the Sutter's Fort area, the town of Sacramento sprang to life practically overnight. The first miners that came to the area began to set up tents all along the waterfront. It soon became a large tent city. Boats that came into the harbor would be left anchored and the cruel crew would abandon the ship and go out looking for gold. At one time, there were so many ships out in the water abandoned that you could practically walk across them all to get to the other side of the river without even getting your feet wet. A lot of this I learned on my tour I took, so that was a lot of fun. This, of course, caused a bit of an issue, not only for the miners who were living in tents and all of the boats that were trying to come up the river to drop more people off and the boats that were out in the water were just stuck there and totally in the way. Lots of miners took to dismembering the boats and build their own little lean-to cabins out of the ship's wood and ship's canvas. This did not last too long, for flooding soon came in and carried away all the little houses. 
Flooding was a huge issue right from the start, but this did not deter businessmen from wanting to begin building real buildings and start to make streets and roadways near the Embarcadero of Sacramento River. Regardless of flooding, being by the river would still gain maximum business from ships coming and going. It would also make all the miners have to stay close to the area if they opened a bank and trading posts. Captain William H. Werner, with the help of William Tecumseh Sherman, surveyed the land and planned out Sacramento Street Grid. Sherman would later become a famous Union Civil War general. The first bank opened in 1848, along with the first buildings being erected. By 1849, the gold rush was truly on, and med flooded into Sacramento. Some were miners, other entrepreneurs, and developers who came in with hopes and dreams in their heart, but when they got to Sacramento, it was not as glamorous as they had imagined. Filthy living conditions, flooding, muddy streets, and diseases were commonplace. With so many people coming to the city every day, this caused a big fight for land. Squatters began to stay around Sutter's Fort and started stealing his livestock and many things from the fort. The stealing was so bad that Sutter actually did not get rich from the gold rush. He actually had to abandon his fort due to people breaking in constantly, and he died a bankrupt man. In April of 1849, the first newspaper began printing issues. It was called the Placer Times and was operated out of Sutter's Fort. The only entertainment in the town was found at gambling halls and saloons until the Eagle Theater was built in 1849. Miners came to watch dramatic plays and musical entertainment. They were so excited to see things they missed from home that they paid $5 in gold dust just to enjoy a performance. It was the first theater ever built in California, and historians believe it was built from the timber and canvas taken from the ships abandoned in the Sacramento Harbor. Unfortunately, it was destroyed by flooding in January 1850, only three months after it had opened. A replica was built in 1974 and is located within the old historic state park. 1850 was a really bad year for Sacramento. First, there was an awful flood. Worse than any of the floods previously, the city had just put in a new levee system to try to keep floodwaters out of the city, but with the Great Flood of 1850, it actually made it worse. Due to the railroad company building in the area, they had soft earth where they were digging, and the water that streamed down the American River with the help of heavy rainfalls from the mountains caused the water to pour down the railroad tracks and over the levee system. This, in turn, made the water inside the levee 10 feet higher than the level of the Sacramento River just on the other side of it. The massive mass of water rushed in, lifting homes and buildings off their foundations. Many homes were simply carried away. Some only had an hour's warning, and some didn't even see it coming. This sent many people just to run for their lives. Some tried to stay up on the top floors of the second-story homes, but the water rising so rapidly they were trapped and they could not escape. Some small boats were used to try to rescue people, but for many, it was just too late. Almost all the town was washed away, and most of the animals in the area died. Men rushed to try to break down the wall so the water could get out, and when the water rushed out, it rushed out as fast as it came in, taking the whole town with it. The town never publicly stated how many died because they didn't want to, to deter people from coming to Sacramento. But I did find out from my tour guide, they think well over, definitely 100 people did die in the flood. And not to mention the poor animals. And he thinks, he doesn't want to overstate it, but I think at least 1,000 people died, to be honest, because there's just no way. How does that many people, like the town was full of miners at this time. I think, I think it's okay to, for me to say well over 1,000 people died. But they never had any records of it, so they're not 100% sure. The worst part was that a lot of Chinese people who were living on the banks of the river along the railroad tracks at this time, and they were all washed away as the water came tearing down the mountainside. They estimated that at least 1,000 people died due to this happening. All in all, the river rose 55 feet in this great flood, and that to me is just insane. I cannot believe there was that much water. This great flood actually affected the entire state of California as well. So this whole uh, flood was just killed lots of people. Thousands died in this flood. It's really sad. After the Great Flood, many people left the area for a bit. They tried to stay up in the mountains and claim their fortune, but when nothing happened, they all ended up coming back to Sacramento. And the ones that did come back had nothing left or very little. 
So more people than ever began to squat on the land. The people who were squatting in the area became increasingly unhappy about Sutter's land titles, and this began a riot known today as the Squatter's Riot. This also began Sutter's downfall into bankruptcy. John Sutter controlled the land in the area, and he charged extremely high prices for land that was constantly flooding and not viable. The miners felt that Sutter was keeping all the good land to himself. This began to spark anger amongst a lot of the new settlers, and especially the old settlers that had already put up with this for a year or two. They became increasingly angry at the government of Sacramento when the courts began to take legal action against the squatters who were not paying the taxes expected or not paying it all to live on the land, hence the name squatters. Once the Sacramento government began to come down on them, the squatters mobilized under the direction of Dr. Charles L. Robinson and Joseph Maloney, and they challenged the new mayor of Sacramento, Harding Bigelow, along with the sheriff, Joseph McKinney. After the sheriff imprisoned two squatters of the last names McClathy and Morgan for living on the land that they did not own, a mob of between 50 and 60 squatters went through the streets with weapons intending to free the men who were now on board a prison ship in the harbor. Mayor Bigelow was afraid that he had a full uprising on his hands, so he went out with the sheriff and a group of militiamen to meet the mob. They met at the corner of 4th and J Street. The details of what happened next are fuzzy, but from some reports at the time, it went down basically like this. The sheriff told the mob of squatters to lay down their weapons, but somebody opened fire, and the two groups began shooting at each other. By the end of it all, Bigelow and McKinley were wounded, and the city assessors J.W. Woodland and Joseph Maloney and a squatter named Jesse Morgan and two bystanders were killed. After this happened, the men who was head of the city council at the time, Albert Mavy Wynn, ordered 500 militiamen into the city and declared a state of martial law to calm everything down. Bigelow did recover from his injuries, but he was unable to continue as mayor. After the riots, the town was hit by bad fire that burnt down almost all the new structures that had been rebuilt after the flood only a few months before. And then in October 1850, a cholera epidemic struck Sacramento, bringing death to the area. During this time, people used to go to the bathroom down by the river, and they also got their drinking water down by the river. And the river flooded all the time, so that was one unsanitary mix. This ended up killing the former mayor and 15 of the city's doctors, along with 1,300 other people. But the city was resilient. Over the next few years, they were able to rebuild the town again. The Pony Express began to run across the country, and the end point was the Hastings Building in Sacramento. One year later, the telegraph was invented, and the wires were spread throughout the country, so the Pony Express Building became the telegraph headquarters. The Pony Express was no longer needed. Only three days after the telegraph office was installed in the Hastings Building, the Pony Express ended. After more flooding in 1862, the people of Sacramento had had enough. They decided to have the city raised up so they could stay out of the flood zone for good. They also redirected the river itself, steering it away from the city. When they raised up the buildings, they left tunnels underneath, and you can still go into some of them today. That is what I got to do with the Sacramento Underground Tour, and it is really cool. They found so many amazing artifacts left underneath the city. They have left what they found in display cases down in the tunnels. But after they rose up the city streets and the city buildings, it took them a while to build boardwalks, sidewalks, over the tunnels, that used to be the sidewalks on the ground level. So get this, to get into a store back in the 1800s, you had to have someone hold your horse, get off, then climb down a ladder onto the old city street level, then climb up another ladder to get into the store that you wanted to get into. Is that just not the craziest thing you've ever heard? And surprise, surprise, those tunnels would flood all the time. Eventually, they built boardwalk-type style sidewalks over the top of them. After they finally got the flooding, the fires, and the illnesses under control, they were able to thrive again. Sacramento became the permanent location of the California State Fair, as well as the place for the groundbreaking ceremony for the Central Pacific Railroad. When the Golden Spike was struck on May 10, 1869 in Permatory, Utah, it opened the floodgate for even more people to travel to California faster than ever before. After the gold rush died down, the area became a top place for agriculture, and it still is today. Growing many crops from fruit trees, nuts, rice, vegetables, olives, and even sunflower seeds. By 1894, 75% of all fruit that was shipped to the East Coast came from Sacramento, California.
In the 1900s, the old town was losing its Old West feel. It became a place of disrepair thanks to the city not far from the waterfront becoming more modern. The Capitol building, being about four miles from the old town, moved the business district away from the waterfront. In 1960, it became a national historic landmark and was restored to look like the Old West. The California State Railroad Museum was built and opened in 1976. I have been to this museum many times and I love it. It's definitely a museum that you want to visit. Just down from it is the Sacramento History Museum and that is where I got so much great information for this episode. I love this little slice of Old West history. But with all that tragedy, it is understandable how there could be many ghost stories attached to this old town. When I went to Sacramento last week, I got to take a lot of pictures and I will post them on my website along with the History and Mysteries Facebook and Instagram page account. Sadly, I was not allowed to take any during the underground tour, but that's okay. I still learned a lot of great information that I'm about to share with you guys. I think you guys should all go check out the pictures I took, especially when it will give you a little bit of background into the haunted places I'm about to be talking about. Now that I have told you an overview of Old Town Sacramento, I thought I would take you on a ghost tour of the area, starting with one of the coolest costume shops I have ever been in, Evangeline's Costume Mansion. Today, Evangeline's Costume Mansion is a three-story costume shop that is one of the few historical buildings that did not get taken away in flood or burned down by any fires. The costume shop resides today in the Ladies Adams Building and the Howard House. The Lady Adams Building was constructed by German immigrants in 1852. The building was constructed using bricks that was used as the ballast of their ship, called the Lady Adams. Because of the use of brick, it was able to survive the floods and fires that consumed almost all of the town. It is the oldest building still standing in Sacramento today. The Howard House next door was constructed in 1860. It housed retail goods on the ground floor and the two upper levels were used as a boarding house. Winding your way through this amazing store is not only fun because of the amazing amount of costumes and weird yet fun elements, but it is also historically appealing. Every floor has bits of the past that are still being used today. From a beautiful fireplace found on the third floor in what they call storybook land to a grand staircase from the street to the second floor. The ceiling on the third floor also has beautiful stained glass skylights and a beautiful mahogany bar from when this place was once a restaurant and saloon. And it was once even a disco club in the 1970s. The place that once had the disco dance floor is now a 70s themed costume area and it still has the old disco ball spinning on the ceiling. The costume store opened upstairs in 2000. Wandering around the winding pathways, it is easy to get lost in the massive amounts of costumes in the area that are themed so you can always find what you are looking for. While I was walking through, I was shocked to come upon a framed picture of Lizzie Borden staring at me. And then a little while later, I found a framed photo of H.H. Holmes, the infamous serial killer from the murder castle in Chicago. I found out that the reason they had these killers' pictures in the store was because they have a scavenger hunt called Murder and Mayhem. It's free to participate and you can get a map of the store and it leads you around the store where you have to find 10 frames holding a photo of someone in history who caused murder and mayhem and each frame has information about the person. Then you have to fill out the answer to a question inside the map such as why was Al Capone finally sent to jail or who said you got me what took you so long upon his arrest. When you complete the scavenger hunt you turn it in and you get a prize. The map is also a great pamphlet with full of information about the history of the building and the costume shop itself. While you are having fun looking around at the beauty and the fun costumes and even the serial killers on the wall, don't forget to keep your eyes peeled for a real ghost or two hanging around amongst the costumes. Many of the staff members have reported hearing weird sounds while opening or cleaning up to close for the day. The sound of footsteps on floors above where they know that no one else is in the building. Also, a few of the staff have even been touched by unseen hands. In the basement, there have been reports of many people feeling like they are being watched. The feeling of being unwelcome at times and even having things move on their own and hearing strange distant voices, as well as seeing movement out of the corner of your eye while focusing on a task. Maybe the most known ghost is a man called Frank. 
Frank is described as a man who is dressed in an old Gold Rush cowboy outfit, but his trench coat is extremely dusty. He has been seen by more than one employee. Frank likes to wander around through the storefront and in the storage hallways. He is mainly spotted after hours, but some customers have even reportedly spotted the man as well. The sound of giggling children and the sound of children playing on the staircase have been reported. Apparently, people will bring their dogs to the store and they will sometimes start to growl at nothing or whine and look scared and stare straight into walls or empty staircases. This place is one of the most amazing costume shops I have ever been in. It is super popular, it's haunted, and it has a serial killer scavenger hunt. What's more to love? The store always almost sells out of all their inventory at Halloween time, so make sure you get there good and early. October is a busy time for them. I would recommend everyone go check this place out and keep your eyes peeled because the person you might think is just trying on a costume might actually be a ghost. The Old City Cemetery is located about 10 minutes away from the Old Town Waterfront District, but it was moved for good reason. The original spot where they buried people in the beginning was washed away in the 1850s flood. This happened again right in the middle of the cholera epidemic. They buried the dead only to have yet another flood come in and unearth all the freshly buried coffins and they all floated away. They moved the cemetery right after this because people were still dropping like flies and they needed some place to bury the dead. This cemetery might no longer be located in the historical district, but it is still a historical landmark by being one of the oldest cemeteries in Sacramento with 36,000 graves. It is located on Broadway, and when the street was widened from two lanes to three, the front gates were moved and the, the cemetery had to be pushed back. They moved the headstones, but they didn't move the bodies underneath. That might explain why this place is so haunted. Here, you can feel a different type of energy. Mediums have talked of unhappy and restless spirits wandering the grounds. The sounds of footsteps behind you as you walk on the paths and when you turn around, there's no one there. Cold spots and shadow figures have been spotted darting between the headstones. You can find a couple dressed in all black, either sitting together or taking a stroll down the rows of tombstones. A black pit bull has been seen playing or wandering around the headstones, even when dogs are not allowed in the area. Then we have the ghost of a little girl named May Woodsley. May passed away in 1878 due to a mosquito bite making her brain swell. May's parents were so upset about her passing and they went out looking for a medium to make sure that their daughter passed on into the afterlife safely. However, her parents became a bit obsessed with trying to contact her and went to many spiritual people to try to just talk to her over and over again. So whether she did pass over into the afterlife peacefully is up for debate because you can still see her ghost playing near her tombstone or you can hear her laughing and giggling and some have even seen her peeking around her own headstone looking at you. People now bring little toys for her and place them on her grave. Moving back into the historic district, one of the most notoriously haunted places is the River City Saloon. Staff and customers alike have reported the glass breaking and furniture moving on its own. Footsteps, sound of people talking and moving in an area that is completely empty. Flickering lights are also regular things experienced. Sometimes you can get an overwhelming feeling of despair. This might be because in the 1850s, this building served as the city's first hospital. And during the cholera epidemic, the hospital was overrun with patients and dead bodies. The number of bodies per day were so overwhelmingly large that many were just set outside the doors of the hospital to wait for a wagon to come take them to the cemetery. Today, customers have said that they have seen people dressed in mourning clothes and then they vanished before their eyes. Others have reported of taking photos in the saloon and see a child that was not there before or after the photo was taken. Another ghost seen here and outside the location is a female spirit who is dressed as if she is a former saloon girl. The restaurant today embraces the ghosts that they have inside their walls. They have a whole page on their website that talks about the haunts and found along with the good food and drinks that they serve up. Another haunted restaurant location is also a hotel and it is located on the water. The Delta King is a riverboat that was first christened in 1927. It was used to shuttle passengers from Sacramento to San Francisco until it was considered obsolete by the development of the Golden Gate Bridge. She was even used by the Navy in World War II and used as floating barracks, troop transport, and a hospital ship. 
After the war, her sister's ship was the Delta Queen, and she was purchased and brought to Mississippi, where it was a flagship for many years for a successful riverboat company. The Queen is now docked as a hotel and restaurant, just like the King is today. However, the King took a lot longer to find its new purpose. The Ghirardelli Chocolate Company once tried to use it as a floating Ghirardelli Square. It was once almost going to be a floating Chinese food restaurant, but all those ideas fell through. It was used in Canada as a housing place for men working at an aluminum can factory and eventually abandoned in San Francisco Bay, becoming partly submerged in water and left to decompose. Luckily for the Delta King, a family decided to buy it and restore it to its original historic glory and they docked it in the old town Sacramento Bay. It took them over five years and a lot of time and money to fix it up. But they did it, and by 1989, they were open for business. Today, it has two restaurants, is a hotel, and has a theater, and they host weddings and events, and of course, it has ghosts. There are a few ghosts on this ship, but one is thought to be an old captain of the ship. He has been seen pacing around the halls and watching performances in the back of the theater. Another is a little girl ghost, and she has been seen many times, and she is extremely active. She has been seen playing with the ball in the hallway. One time, a guest called the main desk to ask them to please check to see if they could find this little girl's parents and make her stop playing in the hallway late at night because they were keeping him awake. When the staff went to check on if there was any little girl, there was no little girl to be found. Others have heard her giggling and run away as if she's trying to play tag. And then, at least for me, this is the most creepy report of all, some people have reported hearing a little girl singing Ring Around the Rosie and down a distant hallway. Ugh, that just creeps me out. <laughs> it is thought that she might have died on the ship in the 1930s because she is always described as wearing a dress from that time period. The last ghost is a man that no one knows who he is. He's always been seen walking around, but he never interacts with anyone. And from what I could find, no one is sure who he is. There's a rumor that someone committed suicide on the ship, but there's really no records to back that up. And just so we're clear, there's no record of a little girl dying on the ship either, but I'm not sure what all that's about. You never know. The Sacramento Visitor Center has an electrical issue. Not surprising when you think about how old this building is. Only trouble is whenever they call the electric company to come check it out, everyone always says, everything is fine. We don't know why your lights are flickering. So sometimes people think it's just ghosts messing with the wires. And a few times, apparently they'll just shut off all on their own all at the same time, which I think is very creepy. The underground tunnels have lots of paranormal activity. Not only are some of the buildings the old brothels area, but they also were places of shady business and gunfights. While I was on the underground tour, one of the buildings we went to was an old brothel that was always made sure that there was business, rain or shine. The brothel put a door on the street level as well as up on the second level so that way boats could pull right up to the building and men could enter. Lots of weird feelings have been reported in this building, along with the many strange artifacts that were found in the privy. That's the bathroom hole, if you don't know, and that was in the basement of the building. In the old privy, they found weighted dice, so someone was cheating at the gambling halls, broken bottles, shoes, strangely enough, a little girl's china doll, and even a painting of Abraham Lincoln. They don't know why he was in there, but I have a funny feeling that when the news of the Civil War starting hit California, I bet that some Southerner got mad and threw him in the privy. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but... I would like to think that that might have happened. It's kind of funny. As for the ghosts, there is reporting of an angry man holding a hand of a child who will yell at people when they come in, and then he'll just vanish before people's eyes. No idea what that's all about, but that sounds like it probably has a tragic story attached to it. Under the Hastings building is a cowboy who apparently yells and laughs at guests before disappearing. We have our lady in white here, but she likes to hang out in the tunnels instead of up on the street. She is seen walking through what would have been the sidewalk in the 1850s. She reportedly called herself Lucy one day when someone asked her her name, and then she just vanished into thin air. Apparitions and shadow figures are also common occurrences in the tunnels as well. Some people have gotten physically ill and had to run outside for relief. Other people have even reported being pushed, pulled, and scratched, and there's also reporting of EVPs saying, get out, in angry voices. The Dingley Steam Coffee and Spice Mill building is reportedly haunted by the old owner named Nathaniel Dingley. Dingley was a spice merchant and a coffee roaster. Dingley ran his business on the bottom floor and he lived on the second floor. He was not a nice man from the looks of it. He was rumored to have 
tapped into the city's steam line to power his buildings without ever having to pay for it. He was also jailed for possessing explosives along with more than the legal amount of gunpowder. He also went to jail for a horrible crime of throwing his mentally disabled daughter down the stairs. He was found dead in his building in 1897 of unknown causes, but honestly looking at his record, it sounds like he was very unpopular and there was no real rush to find out why and how he died. He sounds like quite a winner. Today, people in the building say they can hear movement upstairs when there's no one up there. And also, they hear the sounds that they can't explain, like murmuring and talking. And then when they go looking for people, there's, of course, no one there. Things get moved around quite a bit as well. In the Vernon Brandon house, there is a friendly ghost of a woman who, if you stand too long in the staircase, will whisper, excuse me, in your ear, as if she is trying to get by you. She will also help out the staff by turning on lights for them, and she likes to turn on the lights on the upper balcony if someone is out on the patio. And personally, if I ever have a ghost in my house, I'd hope it was a friendly ghost like that, who would want to help me out instead of just terrify me. The Eagle Theater is haunted by the theater's director from the 1970s. He likes to keep the theater clean, and after shows, he likes to clean up quite a bit. If visitors ever leave any items, they go back to look for them, and they will find them in the green room downstairs waiting for them, as if someone came through and put them there. Only thing is, when they ask the staff, no one touched it, so they don't understand how that, like cell phones and keys and wallets, they don't understand how that stuff gets put downstairs. Also, if any chairs are ever left on the stage, they will be back in their place by morning. So when staff goes back in, the chairs are just sitting off the stage all put away. You can apparently see this director watching shows from the back once in a while as well. Last but not least, we have the building that I started my tour on, and that is the Sacramento History Museum. I didn't have time to look around this museum much because I found out that if you buy a ticket to the tour, you also get to go to the History Museum all day. Sadly, I didn't know this ahead of time, and by the time I got to the museum and we got we did the tour, we were pretty tired and we decided to go home. I spent the entire couple hours before the tour out in the streets taking pictures and learning history about the other buildings outside, which I ended up using, so it wasn't like it was a wasted time. But I cannot wait to go back and check out this museum because it's also haunted. It is said that psychics and other sensitive people who have time to explore the building have said that this building has a special energy around it. I definitely felt the history, but like I said, I was only in there barely 15 minutes and then I had other stuff on my mind. I only had time to walk around the very first floor right near the gate or like the entrance and then we were boom right on our tour. So, which was awesome and I love the tour, but definitely going to go in there next time and take a little longer to actually walk around. Also, from what I could see, the exhibits were stunning. They looked like they just had been remodeled, too, because it looked really modern, and I don't know. I just loved it. Anyway, moving on to the ghosts. The building was once the original city hall and waterworks building. It was also a place of public hangings. The most famous of these was the hanging of George Simmons in 1863. Sidmons was a feared and wanted stagecoach robber, and when he was finally caught in 1860, he was found guilty, and three years later, he was hung in front of City Hall on the waterworks scaffolding. A crowd of 100 people came to watch his execution. It is said that you can see his ghost wandering around in front of the building. Also, the ghost of May Woosley, yes, the little girl I was talking about who can be seen playing at her gravestone, she's also seen playing here as well in inside the museum because her parents just could not accept her death. They continued to go to medium after medium and very many spiritual people. They did readings. Apparently, they even did multiple seances to try to contact their little girl. They kept all of her possessions, including her nightgown, trinkets, and her drawings. They have them placed in a trunk, and today the contents of that trunk are on a display case inside the museum. Not only are there reports of Little May playing in the halls, but you can hear her too. You can hear her laughing, running up and down the hallway, and allegedly her drawings and trinkets that are behind a glass case have been known to move and rotate on their own. This one makes me really sad because I wonder if she's not at peace because her parents kept calling her and she just decided to stick around maybe and now she just maybe she can migrate now too. She can go from the graveyard to the history museum because the history museum has all of her stuff and then of course at the graveyard you know it's her her tomb I just hope that she was able to hang out with her parents because that'd be really sad oh 
I just had a thought. I wonder if the couple in black that are always seen at the at the graveyard are her parents who are in mourning clothes. Now, that would be interesting. I'm not saying that is. I just had a thought. But, of course, a lot of people died in this time. So, I'm sure there were a lot of people that were wearing all black and in mourning at that time. But that would be highly interesting. Just something to think about. Old Town Sacramento is a hidden gem, and I highly recommend everyone go check it out. I know I'm going to go back for the ghost tours as soon as they start up again this October. all enjoy the history and mystery of Old Town Sacramento. I had so much fun making this episode. Before I sign off, I wanted to share a ghost experience that someone shared with me and they said I could tell it on my show. This is my very first listener experience story I get to share, so I'm really excited. This story is from Dad Runs on Coffee and he tagged me on his Instagram and he said, quote, It was a little after 5 a.m. this morning, and I was finishing up getting ready for work. I had our bedroom door closed, and across the hall was our bathroom. We have a very small modern home. We have doors with frosted panels throughout the house, so you can kind of see shadows behind the panels if the person is right up on the doors. I'm standing in the bathroom facing the hallway, and I hear a high-pitched grinding sound. It's almost like the sound of metal on metal like the sound of a car brake pads grinding on metal roots when the brake pads need to be changed. I hear the sound coming intermittently from under the bathroom sink, which faces the hallway. As soon as I start to hear the sound, I start to hear and see our bedroom door handle move up and down as if someone was trying to open it up, but having a hard time. I see and hear the door handle move up and down and a small little pale shadow move up and down behind the frosted panel as if it were a hand on the other side of the door moving with the handle. I decided to ignore the sound, take the four or five steps toward the bedroom door. As the doorknob continues to turn, I put my hand on the doorknob and gently open the door. I didn't want to knock over my daughter on the other side. I open the door and step in to see my daughter laying on the bed with my wife. The bed is fairly high above the ground and takes a bit for her, me, and my wife to get in. I ask my daughter if she was trying to open the door and she shakes her head no. I ask my wife if she heard the door handle move. Thought it was me trying to get in and she said she was getting annoyed because the sound was waking her up. This is the first experience that I have ever witnessed at my house. Recently, my mom passed away after a long battle with cancer. We had her funeral service a week ago today. I'm not sure how to scientifically explain what I saw and heard. I know I'm not crazy and guarantee that it was 5 a.m. and I know I wasn't drunk. Thoughts? End quote. That is a really interesting experience. I would like to think it was his mother just stopping by to let him know that she's still looking out after him and his family. I do believe you and I do believe that you were not drunk. I do wonder what the strange noise you were hearing, though, underneath the sink, other than just the doorknob jiggling. What I find fascinating is that you saw something on the other side of the glass, like something looked like someone was physically opening the door, but your wife and daughter didn't see anyone on the other side of the glass. So I think that is really weird to me. But thank you so much for sharing your experience with me. What do you guys think? We can start a discussion of this on my group page if you guys want. And only nice things, please. I am really sorry to hear about your mom, though. I hope that you guys are all okay and that you guys can get through this together. Again, thanks so much for tagging me in that personal experience. If you have a personal experience story that you would like to send me in here on this podcast, you can either send me a message on Facebook, Instagram, or my email is historyandmystery.thirteen at gmail.com. I can't wait to come back with another episode of History and Mystery. I hope you all have a great two weeks. I will see you guys soon. Bye!